Good morning, St. Columbus. So thrilled to have you here for our adult forum series, which of course continues every Sunday um, this semester. We are deeply honored by our guests today, which we'll introduce shortly. First, we'll begin with prayer. The Lord be with you. Let's pray. Grant, O oh God, that your holy and life-giving spirit may so move every human heart that barriers which divide us may crumble, suspicions disappear, and hatreds cease, that our divisions being healed, we may live in justice and peace. Through your holy name, amen. Like to introduce first a uh, face that may be familiar to you. Um, Peter Lynch grew up in this church, is a teacher of English at Blair in Silver Spring, and newly elected commissioner for Chevy Chase. ANC 34G. ANC 34G. <laughs> Peter. Uh, thank you very much, and it's uh, it's a real honor to be here uh, before uh, all of you in a place that I grew up in. Um, one thing that I really admire about Matt is that he is everywhere. Uh, during the campaign, I, I'd be out to lunch, I'd be on a walk, and sure enough, uh, Matt would be on his bike cruising through town. He, he was working really hard uh, to hear from everybody in the neighborhood and in the ward. Uh, and I spoke to him one time, he said, you're really grinding out there. And he says, I'm not going to let anybody outwork me. Uh, and after having been sworn in on uh, January, early January, um, he's done just that. I've seen him all over the place. He's doing a lot of uh, good, hard work uh, for this community. And we're happy to have him here at St. Columbus. Thank you, I think I can. <laughs> Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. This is my first time with one of these microphones, but it does seem like it's working quite well. I and mean, it is. It is great to be here in St. Columbus. Uh, the, the I, I came a little bit early, and I watched the service, and just was blown away at how beautiful the service is, and how many people are engaged in this community. It's really, really lovely. I have touched this community in lots of different ways over the years as an ANC commissioner, as somebody who's, who lives in the neighborhood. I first met Josh when uh, at memorial services for Nancy Frankel. I think Nancy, many of you will have known Nancy, a longtime member of this community. She was the college roommate of my mother-in-law. So Nancy has a, just a lovely, lovely person who's been a part of our family for, was part of our family for decades. And she would often come over and join us for brunch or something and then come up here to the services. So it's nice to be here and I'm thinking of it a little as in honor of Nancy. Um, I, I, I think I'm gonna talk a little bit about just getting started on the council and my priorities getting going and try not to use too much time because there's a lot of people here who, who could have questions. Uh, my goal for February just was to get started, be operating like a, uh, a council office, responding to constituent needs, 
getting to know people throughout the government, on the council, in the administration, to lay a platform to be as effective as possible going forward. One of the pieces of that work is to get committee assignments. And you meet with Chairman Mendelson and you tell him all the different things that you want, that you're interested in, what are your priorities on committees, and then he takes all that information on board and, uh, and figures out how to assign everybody to every, all the different committees in a way that keeps seven of 13 people happy. <laughs> and so in this first month, I feel like we have done great. I feel like I've made two mistakes. One of them was when I got my committee assignments, I was very incareful and I said, oh my God, I got everything I want. <laughs> I got housing, I got transportation in the environment, I got health, I got uh, oversight over DGS, which people who are in the schools and have interest in the rec centers would know is a very, very important institution. And I got oversight over the agencies that do elections work. I, I could not believe that I got every single thing that I wanted, and I, and I said so, which was dumb. <laughs> and, and I said so to the chairman. Um, I saw him, there was an organizational meeting, and then there was um, a party that the council held at the Ivy City Smokehouse, and they had a a go-go band playing and the music was very loud and it was almost impossible to have a conversation. And so you really, if you wanted to talk to somebody, you had to get right up in their ear and almost yell in their ear. And I, and I talked with the chairman briefly and told him, yelling into his ear, how happy I was about my committee assignments. Well, the next day I tested positive for COVID. <laughs> and so I had to tell everyone that I had tested positive because I had been in contact with more people than I'd been in contact for a long time. Uh, and the chairman got COVID. And the, <laughs> and the chairman is absolutely convinced that it was my Christmas present to him. <laughs> so not a great, you know, he's not a great start. Um, and then at the last minute, uh, I had felt like I got every single thing I wanted. There were people who felt like they didn't get anything they wanted. And the chairman moved me off of health and onto a smaller committee about health equity and hospitals, which is a good committee, but I, I had been excited about being on health, but I think I only have myself to blame for that move. <laughs> and I told the chairman, I didn't fight it, and fighting it was not gonna be a fruitful thing. Um, I told the chairman that I hoped that he would interpret it as me being a good sport and not a pushover. And he said that he would. I hope that he takes that to heart because I'm not going to be a pushover on anything. So in terms of getting started, I, you know, we have a, we'll have a seven-person staff. We have six of our people on, on board already. If you've reached out to us, I hope you feel satisfied with how you're being responded to. If, if you aren't satisfied, please let me know. We want to be a, a, have a seamless response to constituent services requests and issues that are being raised by the community. The things I bring to the table, the priorities that I bring to the table in this new role, and, uh, you know, Peter talked about how I was everywhere during the campaign, and I'm going to be everywhere 
for as long as I'm in this position. I, I actually love it. It's not really work for me to go out to do all of these things and see people. During the campaign, it just reminded me when you, when you raised that, I had, a, you know, I would go to two farmers markets and then to a playground and then to this and to that. And it was fun and there was an adrenaline to it. And one day towards the end of the campaign, I walked up to somebody and I was giving them a flyer. And I said, here, you know, I hope you'll take this. I don't know if any of you got our flower seeds. Um, we, we gave out uh, uh, wildflower seeds with one of our flyers. And so it was a great way to strike up a conversation with people. And I was handing it to this guy and the guy said, dude, it's the third time I've seen you today. <laughs> so, so and, and you know, that, that could seem like work to some people, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem like work to me. Um, in terms of the priorities that I bring to the table, I have spent a decade and a half working on schools issues. I, I think schools lay at the heart of the solution to many of our issues as a city. Uh, it's an equity issue to make sure that all of our children have access to a great education. It's an economic development issue to make sure that, our, that people in all of our communities feel that the matter of right schools in their neighborhood are good enough that they can stay and, and establish roots and we can retain population and be a city of families. It's a public safety issue. You, when you have tens of thousands of people who don't have hope, it's a, it's a mirage to think we're gonna be safe. So we, there are so many reasons why schools issues are critical to the city, and that's a thing that will be a very big priority for me. Um, one of the things that we've been doing now, in addition to getting set up, is we're coming into budget season and school budgets are gonna be hitting in a couple of weeks. Schools will see what's proposed for them in the coming year. And I've been talking to everybody under the sun to try to make sure that our schools are fully funded. And here in Ward 3, we have a particular issue in that last year in the budgets, um, there was, for many of the Ward 3 schools, a chunk of money that was identified as one-time money. Well, if that one-time money actually disappears, we got a problem. So uh, part of what I've been doing, a big part of what I've been doing is trying to make sure that we don't lose that one-time money and that the, that the budgets for our schools have the buying power to at least maintain the levels that we've been at. So that's, that's education is a big priority um, and very specifically right now, uh, the school budgets. Another one that is very big for me, and many of you know me from this work because I've been very active with the Washington Interfaith Network and, um, and, and as the chair of the board for the Lisner Home, is housing and affordable housing. And I have been, I, I went to an Emancipation Day celebration uh, a number of years ago and James Clyburn, I don't know if you know, Emancipation Day is a celebration of the day that slaves in Washington, D.C. were freed, which was before the Emancipation Proclamation. This was a time when having a radical Republican Congress was a good thing. Um, <laughs> so, uh, 
So I was at an Emancipation Day uh, celebration, and James Clyburn was one of the speakers. And James Clyburn said, you know, people say that I'm the first African-American member of Congress from the old Confederacy, but it's not true. During Reconstruction, there were many African-American members of Congress. And I sat in the audience and I thought, I don't know much about Reconstruction, and I have a feeling everything I know is wrong. And so I went back and began reading the history of Reconstruction, which took me on a journey of the history of Washington, D.C. And one of the things that I talk about now is War Three came to look the way that it does through very intentional policies of first exclusion in the 1920s and then and 30s, and then active segregation through covenants starting in the 30s and 40s. And if we're going to change Ward 3, it's also going to take intentional policies to make sure that Ward 3 is as welcoming of a place as possible to as many different kinds of people. And that's not been our history. That doesn't mean the people in this room did that. But when we moved in here, um, uh, we came and we looked at a whole bunch of different neighborhoods, and we found this neighborhood, and both my wife and I thought, yeah, you know what? Uh, this is lovely. It's, it feels safe. The schools are good. This could be a great place for us to live. We didn't think about any kind of racial history to the area. We just thought, this is a place that sort of feels like where we're from. Actually, the places where we were from were shaped by this racial history in the first place, and then this place felt familiar because of the way that it fit into that racial history. And I had a good friend, at, I was at a big law firm at the time, and I had a good friend who um, was African-American and also looking for a house at the same time, and I kept encouraging him to look at this area, and he never did. And I did not understand it, I just couldn't get it. And then, I don't know, five years ago, there was a story in the Washington Post about buying a house while black, something like that, that was the title. And it was about a couple that was just like my wife and I. And they were African-American and they looked in lots of different places. And it wasn't necessarily set here, but every city is similar. And there was a place like this, where the schools were great, it felt safe, it checked every box for them, but there weren't enough people who looked like them, or maybe more importantly, looked like their children because of the history that had come before. And so they chose a different place. Well, we need to get to a place where African-American families, when they look at this place, don't, that isn't their calculation. They feel like there's enough people who look like them, and this place feels welcoming. And it's kind of easy words to say, but I actually think it's important that I say it, and I'm going to say it over and over again, because we need to think about it. You know, there's all this debate about woke and political correctness and critical race theory. It's just a reality that we live in a world that has been shaped by race for centuries. And if we're going to change it, we need to talk about it, we need to think about it, and we need to confront the ways in which we all fit into it. So that's part of where I'm coming from when I think about housing. Housing 
in, in Ward 3 also turns into very specific kinds of proposals. And the big things on housing right now, the big thing for me is the Chevy Chase uh, Civic Corps. And there may be people here from Chevy Chase who have, who are touched by this. And the idea is that, um, <clears throat> that the, where the library and the rec center are, that we would build a new library and recreation center and put affordable housing on top of that. Housing and affordable housing on top of that. And that has triggered a lot of, it, there's a lot of people, the, the ANC in, word, in Chevy Chase, Peter, that's your ANC, <laughs> has done incredibly exciting work in this area and, created a framework so this can happen. But there's, you know, with every development project in Ward 3, there's a lot of concern about it. And so how do we get from here to there where we actually get this thing built? And there's concern because there's a feeling that, that the administration often is more interested in the fate of developers than the fate of communities. And so that, whether that's fair or not, that's a real concern that's out there. So I'm trying to work with the ANC, with the community, and with the administration to make sure we shape that project so it's something that we can all be proud of. The things that I've talked about, and this is where, you know, I want to see more, and I want to see more affordable housing, but I also want to see us do it in a way that's successful vis-a-vis -vis the communities, because when you do something that is successful vis-a-vis -vis one community, it makes it easier to do it in the next. The Lisner home that I worked on is a great example of that. Um, <clears throat> we were building 93 units of deeply affordable senior housing. We rolled out a proposal. The neighborhood freaked out didn't like the way that it looked, didn't like the way it related to the neighborhood. We told them that we were gonna build something about this scale and that it was gonna go essentially where it was, but we'd listen to them about everything else. And they, you could see them thinking, you know, what does that mean? We're gonna tell you about the color of the shutters? You're not, you're not willing to make any kind of significant move. But we listened to what they had to say, and the building had been not, it's not fair to say sort of a straight wall on 42nd Street across the street from the houses, and that was a thing that they objected to. And we, it had a courtyard in the center away from the street. And we, we listened to all the things they had to say, and we turned the building so the courtyard faced them. And we figured out a way to have the cars come in off of Western Avenue. And we went to the community and we showed them our new plans and you could see all the people on the, on the Zoom call, like they didn't want to say anything because they liked it, but they didn't want to rat out their neighbors and say they liked it before they had talked to each other. But eventually they talked to each other and they got behind our project and testified for us at the Zoning Commission and testified for us at the Historic Preservation Review Board. And we're building 93 units of deeply affordable senior housing in Ward 3, the first historic production trust fund project in Ward 3 ever with the support of the community. You can do it. And that's what I want to try to do in Chevy Chase. I want to make sure that we get a great library, a great rec center, 
lots of new housing, but that we do it in a way that we preserve green space, so green and play space for the community. That we do it in a way where the building transitions to the residential neighborhoods so that nobody feels like they have a looming seven-story building right next to their house. We do it in a way that respects the architecture and feel of the corridor. We can do it. And we can do it and win people over in the community in the process by taking their input and being respectful. Now, there are going to be some people in Chevy Chase who I'm going to be in effigy. You know, they're, they're, they don't want this. They don't want any kind of change there, and I'm not their guy. But I actually do want to be listening to what's on people's mind and come up with solutions that I can feel, that I can look those people in the eye and say, I heard what were the things that were driving your concerns and tried to address them. So that's one area in the, in the housing space that I kind of use both to show what my goals are and show what my mode of operation is. A different one. Where are we on time? Do we? Just. Okay. So I'll just go five more minutes and then we'll get to questions. So. Uh, a different one, and many of you may be touched by this, is there's a lot, there are a lot of challenge that, challenges that are arising from the voucher program as it has been uh, implemented on Connecticut Avenue and everywhere. And it is critically important that we find homes for our homeless population and that we fully serve those people when we get them homes and that it work again for them, their, the other people in the building who are on vouchers, and the other people in the building who have been there for a longer time. So this is, this is a flashpoint issue where there are folks in the advocacy community who when people raise concerns about how these, how these programs have been implemented, feel like the neighbors who are raising the concerns are somehow xenophobic and being unfair. And there are people in the, in the, in the buildings who also are overreacting on certain things. But there's a real issue. There are people who are being moved into independent living who are not ready for that and who are creating real disruptions for themselves and for other people. There are people who, with some more services, could thrive, but are not necessarily always getting those services. And there are ways in which the program works that is almost intentionally designed to undermine rent stabilization so that you have one form of affordable housing cannibalizing another form of affordable housing. It's a really tricky issue. But we gotta, we gotta make it work because we need to be welcoming, but we also need for the program to be operating in a way that everyone feels like they're being treated fairly. And that's not where we are. And so navigating that discussion in the next couple of years is gonna be a real trick for me. I said during the campaign, I actually think I am 
the guy for this job because I think I have standing in the advocacy community. I don't think anybody can look at what I've done over the last 15 years and say he's all about exclusion. You know, I've been an advocate for every corner of the city. When I was advocating for the modernization of Merch Elementary School, I was advocating for the modernization of what was then called Orr Elementary School in Ward 8. I, I, I think I have the standing to, to help to navigate this discussion, and I hope all of you and the different congregations will be a part of it. Not just to support making sure we're housing the homeless, but also that we're serving them properly and being respectful to the needs of the people who, who were in those buildings already. Because, and I'll end on this, um, I had a day during the campaign that was just, you know, one of my favorite days where I was uh, knocking on doors in Cleveland Park, on the western side of Cleveland Park. And I knocked on this guy's door and he said, you know, hey, come sit on my porch and I, I'd like to talk with you. And he said that when the Brooks, and I think this congregation was active in advocacy for the Brooks, the transitional housing project on Idaho Avenue. When the Brooks was proposed, I fought it with every single thing that I had. But you know what? It's working pretty well. And then I went, you know, a half hour later, I knocked on somebody else's door. And the same kind of thing, he said, here, will you sit with me for a bit? And he said the same thing, that he'd fought the Brooks and that the Brooks was working well. Well, if we do it right, then it's easier to do the next thing. And the Brooks is an example of where we have done it right, and it is really important, not just that we do it, but that we do it right so that we build the foundation to do more of the kinds of things that reflect the values of the people in this church and around Ward 3. So with that, I will stop and I welcome any questions anyone has. <laughs> We've invited Commissioner Lynch to ask the first couple of questions. Peter, if you want to ask from here, and while you're making your way over here, just a reminder to everyone that we're going to ask questions from this mic. That way it ensures everyone can hear it, and also the people who are watching online can um, also hear and see us. So if you wouldn't mind coming to the mic, uh, it's deeply appreciated. Thank you. for being with us today. I really respect the role you do. Thanks for the work. Um, I used to live on the DC side, Friendship Heights, for about 10 years. Now I live in Bethesda, so Maryland side. And I've seen it from both sides where I see a lot of missed opportunity for regional cooperation and planning. And when we think about homelessness, for example, um, it's not something that stops at the border. So I use the Bethesda Metro fairly frequently and um, there are people who are sleeping there at night, very similar to the Tenley Town stop or the Friendship Heights stop. Um, so I um, know that you're new to your role, but I just wanted to suggest and ask how you're thinking about regional coordination, because Montgomery County Council is dealing with some of the very same issues. And the solution, especially when you think about kind of the wraparound services and jobs and transportation, could be so much better solved through regional coordination. I watch the buses stop right at Friendship Heights 
and then a different bus picks up. If you are already commuting for an hour, hour and a half to work, and you have two kids at home, and you're trying to make a living or start off a new start in affordable housing, it doesn't really help that DC and Maryland can't coordinate to have one bus route that goes up Wisconsin. So there are really simple uh, fixes that could be done through regional coordination. So I'm just curious how you've thought about that and um, whether you've had a chance to reach out to the Montgomery County Council. Uh, well, thank you for that question. I mean, that is, that's a really useful suggestion. One of the places actually in Friendship Heights is a place where regional cooperation is, there's a seed for it because there's this new entity called the Friendship Alliance, which is a, a coalition of the landowners to create what's called a business improvement district, or that's what it's called in on the DC side. And on the Maryland side, it has a different name, but it's the same thing. So they brought together the 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 landowners on both sides of the border to think about the planning and coordination um, for that, for the development of that area. Now that's not exactly what you're talking about, but my counterpart from the Montgomery Council, who's on the other, who represents the, the Maryland side of the border, is a part of that as am I. So that's, um, we're getting together uh, through that vehicle and can use it to talk about other things as well. And, and I, I like your idea of a bus route, that a seamless bus route. I didn't know that there was not a seamless bus route. A um, little bit tricky because it's going to, buses are going to be free on the DC side soon and, and not necessarily on the Montgomery County side, but maybe Montgomery County can be encouraged to try to do something like what we're doing. So that's, I have not, gotten started on this, uh, other than the Friendship Alliance thing. Uh, but it's a really great suggestion, and I, I will pick up on it. So thank you very much. Somebody else is coming to the mic. I'll ask a question. Um, you mentioned the Chevy Chase Library and Rec Center. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you mentioned the Chevy Chase Rec Center and Library as a prime opportunity where else in Ward 3 do you see up and coming hot spots of opportunity to tackle um, this issue of affordable housing? Yeah, so the biggest one in terms of scale is Friendship Heights. Um, Friendship Heights, there's the, the Friendship Alliance is working on planning processes for it, the Office of Planning is, but the big thing is the WMATA bus garage and the Lord and Taylor site. A lot's happening in Friendship Heights already, but in terms of addressing affordable housing, it's not doing much because it's uh, most of what's happening will just be the inclusionary zoning requirements because they're matter of right projects. But the, for the Lord and Taylor site and the bus garage offer really significant opportunities to do more in terms of affordable housing and revitalizing a business district. Friendship Heights has suffered for a long time for a variety of reasons, but COVID was sort of the final kick. Um, and so how do we do that? How do we, how do we make sure we fully take advantage of the opportunity? I mean, the, 
the tragedy, but also the opportunity of Friendship Heights. Um, there is also planning processes up and down the Wisconsin Avenue corridor and the, and the Connecticut Avenue corridor. And we need to look for ways to make sure that those are not just building opportunities, but they're affordable housing opportunities. So being strategic about how we can take advantage of opportunities to add density along our corridors and maximize affordable housing, it's going to be a high priority for me. Jeff Stenson, I live down the street. Um, do you have any insights or any plans or any foresight on creating affordable housing for families? I could see, because we have a good grade school here, a good middle school, that it could be very beneficial for families. And how do you balance that idea of to have more affordable housing for families in Ward 3 with the overcrowding of the schools in Ward 3? How have you thought about that? Yeah, so when we, we, the, the focus of building in recent years has been studios and one bedrooms. Um, that was the perception by the market of, of where the demand was coming from. And it's going to take a push to ensure that two and three bedroom apartments are included in new developments. That's a thing that, you know, that's a priority for me. Um, you know, right now you have City Ridge and Upton Place and Hearst, little old Hearst Elementary. And what's the impact of 1,400 new apartments inside of the Hearst boundary? We need, that has to be a focus. Now, whether or not that's a thing that you put on the shoulders of developers or that's a thing that the city has to take care of in, as part of its encouraging of new development, that it also invest in infrastructure. But addressing school overcrowding uh, so that, well, for a lot of reasons, but including so that we have the capacity to absorb more residents is, is again, a very important priority. Something that, our, that we've become aware of in, during COVID is uh, our church's complicity with the destruction of Fort Reno, the black community there. And it seems that there's a debt that the city owes, as well as our church, uh, for that destruction where the high school and the middle school were built on the community, as well as the national park. And curious, you have any thoughts on ways the city can redress that? Well, I think the push to the the push to increase affordable housing in the area is one part of it. Um, I think another part of it is we sent the most explicit message of unwelcome and with the destruction of Reno City. And we need to own it, as you are describing. This church wants to own it. And then what does that mean if you own it? You can own it, and then that's that. Or you can own it and you can look for things that you can do that respond to the wrongs past. And th that's, gonna, that's part of what animates my work on affordable housing. It's not, even if we didn't have the wrongs of the past, you still would want to increase affordable housing and, and make this place more welcoming than it has been. But given the wrongs of the past, 
let's all own it. And when we're fighting because we're concerned that maybe we'll lose a parking space or that we also see it in a, in a broader context. <laughs> I want to be clear. You know, there, there's lots of debates and, they, and, and, you know, complaints about developments because people are concerned that they're going to lose parking. And sometimes those are valid and sometimes they're not. Like, you need to, you, you can't just throw any baby out with the bathwater. But we, ha we have to be careful not to so elevate our need for personal parking that we won't change anything about our community because we have an obligation to change things about our community. Hi, Matt. Uh, Sandra Mills. Um, you, you mentioned inclusionary zoning. And for people who don't know, that's a requirement that developers make available at a somewhat discounted rate some of the apartments, a relatively modest percentage of the apartments they put into their new buildings. Um, and as we've seen, that, that doesn't really get you a lot of deeply affordable housing. There have been other proposals, for example, to um, build what's called social housing, uh, another model, and also to, for the city to just outright buy land and start developing. Have you taken a position on some of these alternatives? And if so, what positions have you taken? Thanks. So, so social housing, which uh, Councilmember uh, Janice Lewis-George proposed a bill on it, and the idea of it is the city would own and operate housing, mixed income housing, and therefore the city would be in a position to put more affordable into such a building because it didn't have a profit motive and didn't and so it could be done more efficiently uh, is an intriguing idea and I supported it out of the box. I think everyone, including Janice, is trying to think about the practicalities of it and how it would work. One of the th responses that people offer is, so what's the other example of where we're doing this? And unfortunately, it's, it's not mixed income, but it's DCHA, which has not operated well. So you, you need to figure out what you can do under the social housing model and how you would operate it so that it can be successful. And I think in the housing committee, which I will be on, and Janice is on, and Robert White, who's sympathetic to this idea, is chairing, we're going to be exploring how might you do that. Um, and and I, don't, I don't have the right answer yet, but the goal of having a different model, at least as one of the models, than the housing production trust fund model where it's, their projects are bid by private developers and there's a profit, a significant developer-free profit fee to profit margin built in, I'm committed to exploring that and figuring out how we do it. The other idea, which is the city purchasing properties, being in a position to more nimbly purchase properties, um, I, I will put that in my budget letter. Council members uh, submit a letter to the mayor saying, here are what my project my budget priorities are, and it's a long list and you don't get anything like everything that you're going to ask for, but I am going to be asking that a fund be created so the city can more nimbly buy properties. One of the things, and I don't think I'd be putting as much money as could have been 
enabled buying the Wardman. But the Wardman, had the city bought the Wardman, we'd be in a different position vis-a-vis -vis the Wardman today than we are. But there are other things. And if the city purchased properties and then put them out to RFP, so that requiring higher levels of affordability, you could get above that inclusionary zoning level. The inclusionary zoning level in a matter of right project is 8% of the units. We're going to have to have a whole lot more than 8% of the units if we're going to really change the trajectory of affordable housing in the ward. So I'm sympathetic to both of those things. And on the fund to purchase properties, I will put it into the, my budget letter, which actually will be a part of making it part of the conversation, um, including around social housing. Good morning, Mark Minsker, Jackson Reed High School. Um, Matthew, thank you for being here. Can you talk a little bit about your vision for the Chesapeake House and for Reno? Uh, so uh, the Chesapeake House, if folks don't know what it is, it's the little building. It was once a plumbing place, and it was once a the precursor to the ANCs, the planning, uh, um, local planning offices, and it sat empty for over a very long time. The ANC3E convinced the developer UIP of the, what was the Mortys building to put $250,000 to make that building a warm shell so it could be used for various different purposes and it would be up to the community how it would be used. Actually be up to the community and um, the National Park Service because it's, national, it's owned by the National Park Service. I would like to see a visitor center on the ground floor that told the history of Reno City and the history of the Civil War defenses of Washington because uh, uh, I think that is really important history and having a place where it's all captured would be useful. The talk had been that um, Tenleytown Main Street would have an office on the second floor uh, and then use that place for community meetings, for Jackson Reed students, for Deal students. Maybe there's after school kinds of things that you could do there. There's a lot of history in that place, but it, and if you had a place that was managed and open for different kinds of things, lectures, uh, you could do a lot that's exciting. But my vision actually around Chesapeake House is bigger because I think that Fort Reno, bringing out the history of Fort Reno in, would be a, is a really important thing, because Fort Reno, everything happened at Fort Reno. Uh, you, you know, there's that tower that's kind of pinkish uh, tower with the metal sheathing. Well, that was a Cold War defense thing. That's a, got a communications bunker below it. Fort Reno, Fort Pennsylvania at the time was critical to the defense of Washington during the Civil War. When, when uh, Jubal Early was attacking the city from the north, the guns from Fort Reno, they saw him. They'd cut down all of the trees for miles so that you could see the Confederates coming. So they cut them all down just in case and you could see, they could see the dust from the Confederate troops way off in the distance and the artillery from Fort, from Fort Pennsylvania shelled the incoming 
Confederate troops, so they arched around and came, tried to come through to the city through Fort Stevens and bought time for experienced troops to come back from Virginia to defend the city and repel the Confederate army at Fort Stevens. It's, it's another chapter of critical history. Then you have Reno City, which is really an important history. Then you have the concert series at a time starting at the, in 1968 in a time of a, a really interesting time in the city. We can use that place as a way of telling the history of the United States and telling it to the people who live in this area. I, I'm going to run out of time, but I just want to throw up one last thing. Because one of the things at Reno City, and it goes to what do we do? What do we do to, to address things that had happened? Well, there were a number of churches in, at Reno City. And if we could almost in a kind of sculptural stick way build the outline of one of those churches on Nebraska Avenue as you're coming up, which I think of Nebraska Avenue as Main Street Ward 3. You know, it, tr it goes through the entirety of Ward 3. Um, and people drove by and their kids said, Mom, what, what's that? And, and then mom said, well, that was a church back in the 1920s that w was part of an African-American community. You can draw out that history and make people aware of that history in lots of different ways. And that in and itself is an important project. Do we have more time or? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. All right, I'll see you at the coffee and donuts or not or just the coffee.